The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity once again to come celebrate you. We thank you first and foremost that you loved us. You loved us long before we loved you. You'll love us long after. And we thank you that you put people in our lives that help witness the gospel to us, that help draw us closer to you. And we thank you that we in turn get that opportunity for others. We thank you that you've given us your word, your gospel, but that you want us to be active members of your gospel, that it wasn't enough that you just restored us, but that you, get to, that you want to use us, that we get to be part of your plan, and that we get to witness to our friends, our family, our coworkers, and people we meet in our daily interactions. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times where our, our witnessing hasn't been of you, but of our own, our own selves, our own intentions. And we pray that we would remember to focus first and foremost on you and the gift you've given us in your son. We pray for Scott as he gives us the word today, Lord, that he would help uh, edify us and help us learn to be better witnesses of, of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. We say these things, Lord, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kelsey. Good to see all of you today, and uh, it's great to be with you. And uh, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount and as you just heard, we're going to go through that passage in just a minute. We live in a weird time. I don't know if you've noticed. Anybody watch the news? This is a strange, strange time. I'm not even, I'm not even going to talk about impeachment, except to say, to me, impeachment sounds like something you do to make your ice cream taste better. <laughs> Have you tried this ice cream? It's been impeached, and it's delicious. Just think about that as you're watching the news. It makes everything better. I'm convinced that Jesus had jokes before the Sermon on the Mount. Just nobody thought they should write them down, but I'm sure they were good. What should a disciple of Jesus or somebody who desires to be understand about the kingdom of God and how should they see themselves, the people they know and the world that they live in, what should they be concerned about? There is so much in the Sermon on the Mount for us to know and so much for us to learn. And today we're going to see something about who we are, who we are in Christ and what we're to be concerned about and what we're to do about that. We should all agree that what we ought to be concerned about are the things that Jesus is concerned about. So often we're concerned about things that Jesus is not putting at the top of his list. We need to be concerned about what Jesus is concerned about and live our lives that way as we follow him. This is a sermon that is given to his disciples. Scholars like to debate, what does that mean, disciples? The 12 or does it mean everybody following him? Uh, nobody really knows. But for sure, he's saying it loud enough for people to hear. And he knows that people who are following him need to hear this and that includes us today. And by the way, what are we supposed to be doing as his disciples today if you are a believer? Making disciples and teaching them this. In Matthew 5, verse 13, it says, he says to them, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. I want to stop for a second there and ask you, if you're a Christian, if you consider yourself a Jesus follower today, do you feel this way about yourself? That you are the light of the world, that you are the salt of the earth. You think of yourself that way? 
It's interesting here because Jesus is not giving you some command here exactly to become that. He's saying that you are. I think for a lot of us, we have trouble with that right out of the gate because we see ourselves in the mirror, and when we're honest with ourselves in different ways, we know we have so many struggles and so many ways that we are fallen and and so many things. Some of us here today are just in darkness, even though you consider yourself a Christ follower, and you read these words and you say, well, he doesn't mean me. But if you've been paying attention to everything he's been saying so far, he does mean you. You see, your salvation has already been accomplished on the cross. He asked you to have faith in him and to move forward and make disciples. And wherever you find yourself today, I'm going to give you something that will get you on mission today. And so wherever it is that you see yourself, I hope that one of the things you see in yourself today is that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Not for your own benefit, as it says at the end of this, for the benefit of the kingdom of God, to show people who God is. That you have a mission, you have a purpose in this life that is the greatest mission ever given to human beings to let people know who Jesus is, that he is the savior of the world. Notice here it doesn't say become salt, but there is kind of a warning in there. It does say that you can lose your saltiness or what's been given. It doesn't say become light, but it's going to describe what that means in the next part. But we need to know that this is how Jesus sees us, but also to have this warning that we can lose perspective, that salt can lose its saltiness. The idea here is that it becomes useless. You don't want salt on your your stuff if it just doesn't change the flavor. It's just pointless. It can no longer season. It can no longer preserve. And what he's talking about here is that we can become somebody who just doesn't have a societal or spiritual function because we forgot what it is we're supposed to be doing. We see elsewhere in the Scriptures about Christians who have lost their first love, Christians who are going through the activities of faith. They go to church and they participate and they pray and they do all the stuff. But then we see a scary passage where Jesus says, I don't know you. We have to be aware that losing our saltiness means in the Greek to become foolish, to waste what has been given to us and to become useless and to turn from that. Jesus says some very sobering things to each one of us. So let me ask you this, how is the church doing in America? You pay attention? Let me depress you for a moment. North America, Western countries, a lot of great things happening, by the way. I don't want to discount that God is doing some great things in the lives of people here and the lives of other people in other churches that you know God is still active. But if you get up 30,000 feet and you just take a look at how's the church doing, this is the data. Every day in the United States, 10 churches close. Today, 10 churches are going to close. Tomorrow's a holiday. 10 churches are going to close. 10 churches are going to close on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. In fact, it's more than 10 churches if you just do the statistic. It's 3,700 churches a year are going to close this year. They closed last year, and they closed the year before that. You aware of that? One of the things that's hard is if you're part of a church or part of a body anywhere, even in your company or in your school or in your family even, your small group, whatever sort of bubble we put ourselves in sometimes, sometimes we're just not aware of what's going on until it's too late. We're not aware of what is going on in the world unless you really take a look and you pay attention. One writer likes to say that time in erodes awareness of, that the longer we're doing the same thing over and over again, the less we spend time taking a look at what actually is happening outside, whatever that is, where we've put ourselves. 3,700 churches every year. 
LifeWay's researcher, Ed Stetzer, his research shows that old mainline congregations, the really old, about seven old, really mainline congregations, that they are statistically headed to zero by 2040. 20 years, most of you will see that. In 2018, there were 340,000 churches in the United States, Christian churches. Studies are saying that by 2050, there will only be 176,000 left, or 176,000 will close, a little more than half. The facts bear that out, and it's happening every day. 3,700 churches close every year, but 4,000 churches are started every year. It sounds like a net game of th- a gain of 300. But here's the problem, 300 churches a year does not cover the, the population growth that's been experiencing. So fewer and fewer people are, have a church that is available for them to be a part of. And out of those 4,000 churches that are started every year, about 80% of them won't make it more than a couple of years. That's a significant change that we are in the midst of. Maybe you didn't see it, but all the numbers are pointing to that. It's a massive drop in churches coupled with significant population growth in the United States. Why is this happening? It's happening because our country has become secular and because churches become inward focused and not outward focused and it's really hard for them to see what has happened. But the country has changed, it just has. And it's changed dramatically just over the past few years. An earthquake has happened. Are we ready for this? You see, churches tend to quickly move to a place where they are designed for the enjoyment of church people and not for the ministry of the gospel to their community and neighbors. And this happens all the time in churches. The reason lots of church plants don't make it is because after a couple years, we like it the way it is, we're going to keep it just for us. Older churches don't make it because we like it the way it is, we're going to keep it just for us. And we don't see anything wrong with that. And yet the entire world on the outside has changed, and the needs that the church should be meeting are not being met. See, it becomes not a church anymore. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, says Jesus, who then promises to be with us even till the end of the age. The interesting thing about the Great, Commandment, the great Commission, it was not given to non-believers And it was not a challenge to the world to come into our buildings. This is not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus has not said to the world, go to church buildings. He has called the church, which is people, us, to go out and make disciples, to be busy doing the work of Christ in this way. He never challenges the world to come to our buildings. We are never told to gather and wait for the church, wait for people to come to us. Now, I have a few more encouraging statistics, however. You probably keep hearing these studies that say fewer and fewer people identify as Christian now in the U.S. That's worse, uh, or that's true. And uh, fewer and fewer people are going to church, especially young people. That's true also if you consider all young people. 33% of young people, whatever that is, consider themselves Christian today. Only 33%, and that number is falling rapidly. 80% of youth in any church youth group will not stay in the church after high school. 80%. Does it sound like it's not working? But here's something to know. If you ever get into statistics, the general social survey from the University of Chicago is excellent. It's it's where all these other groups ultimately get their, their information, Pew Research and all these different groups. General social survey, it's called. 
It has the best research on these things. Here's the interesting thing. 33% of young people consider themselves Christian. However, when you get into the research, did you know that according to that survey, more young people are going to church today than they were in 1972? That's something you don't hear. You see, what is changing is people's attitudes towards Christianity. You see, younger people who are in church are just as devout as they've always been. In fact, there's even more young people who are devout and in church. And the doom and gloom that we hear over these church statistics is a little bit misplaced because we're looking at sort of these general numbers about people who claim to be a Christian in a survey. What we are witnessing is the death of kind of some old ways of doing things and some political ways of doing church, and people are saying, forget that, I'm out. But actually, there's some great numbers. What's actually becoming clearer in our culture is what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. Today, last year, actually 2018 now, 65% of Americans identify as Christian in the surveys. That's down from 85% in 1990. Is 65% of our country Christian? No, of course not. Why do they say that? What's happening is that fewer people are devout Christians, not that fewer people are devout Christians, what's happening is that fewer people are nominally Christian who are saying it. Meaning that it used to be, you get a survey call and they'd say, uh, what's your religion? And you'd say, check this box. And you would pick a box and you would check it. And you felt social pressure to be Christian most of the time, unless you were part of another faith. And what's happening in our culture is that that is changing. People don't feel the social pressure to be anything anymore. So it used to be that whoever you were, you probably went to Sunday school at some point at a Baptist church or Presbyterian church or some church somewhere, and so you pick that box. Or maybe you realize you're Protestant or Catholic, you don't really know what you are, but you pick one of those. And so you're counted as Christian in those surveys. But we all know that that doesn't really make you devout. Maybe you don't even know what that means. What's changed is that people don't feel like they need to tick any one of those boxes anymore. Instead, they tick the box that says no religion. It's called the religious nuns. Have you heard this? You hear this on the news all the time, the rise of religious nuns. And by the way, that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, okay, just so we're not confused. But the thing is about that is that I think sometimes people in the church think, oh, this is terrible. But you know what? Really, it isn't, because really, it's a lot more honest. And isn't it better for people just to say what they are rather than to pretend they're something that they're really not and they don't understand? And what you are finding is that Christians in this country, devout Christians who are part of a body of Christ who want to be missional, that number actually is still growing, although it's not keeping pace with the population. But there's actually a lot of good news. The people who are devout are not shifting, and many young people who are as devout as ever, they are growing in their faith. So be encouraged. In older generations, the good news is, is Lots of people were nominally Christian, and they felt compelled to say they were a Christian, so no one would share the gospel with them even though they weren't Christians. Now they're saying they're not Christians, and it's opened up opportunity. And they're not socially thinking to themselves, people aren't going to like me if I say I don't believe, which they used to say, so they didn't say. And now they'll be able to say. And actually, we have a much greater, more realistic mission field than we've ever had. I shared the gospel with a woman in her 80s a few years ago. She'd been in church her entire life. And she came to me and she said, I don't understand that Jesus died for my sins. And I thought to myself, you have been in church since you were a little girl. How do you not know this? You've heard 65 or 70 Easter sermons. You've probably never missed an Easter. But she said she was embarrassed to ask. And she was in church every Sunday for 80 years. I was glad to be able to tell her that Jesus died for her sins. 
to be able to tell her the gospel, that he lived the perfect life that she can't live, that he rose again from the dead, giving her hope of everlasting life. I believe I'll see her in heaven. She's dead now. And I think she's with Jesus. But isn't that scary? So it's a good thing that people are stopping pretending that nominal Christian Christianity is on its way out. So what are we to do about it? Here's what we do. We return to Jesus. We return to Jesus who tells us who we are, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We seek first His kingdom and not our own. And watch this in the passage. It says, we give light to everybody in the house. Verse 15, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Look, it begins with being, believing Jesus by believing what he says about us, that as Christ followers, we are the light of the world. And light is meant to be seen, to show the way, to be a beacon of hope. When you look at the news and you see how terrible it is, you know what? The light is never intended to be in the government or in education or your bank account. The light is us. And that's great news. That gives us purpose and reason. Light is meant to be seen. Jesus, by the way here, he's not telling people how to fix their house. It's not some kind of Jesus feng shui. Put your light over here, make sure people can see it. He understands what he is saying to these people, these regular people just like us, that there is great meaning, that the light of the world is not a church program, a denomination, or a music style, or pastoral style. The people are the light of the world because we reflect Christ, who is the light. And we are his body. Let me share another, another statistic with you. This one I'm going to shoot down. Studies say that 20% of Americans attend church weekly. You can find polls that say 40% of Americans attend church weekly, Gallup and other things, but they call you up and say, do you attend church weekly? And you feel embarrassed and you say, yeah, you mean I attend on Easter, but, but the studies, the people go in and really ask you, it's, a little, it's about 20%, a little less than 20% attend church weekly in America. If the purpose of the church is to get people into our buildings, we are failing miserably. But I have another statistic for you. I think that 20% or 40% is wrong. Here's the statistic. I think 100% of people in our country attend church weekly. Every week. You see, biblically, the church is not an address. It is a people. And I think that nearly 100% of Americans interact with a Christian every single week. And therefore, they are at church. The thing we need to keep in mind is that most people in our nation... They don't see our stage presence. They don't come in here and hear the band or the, they don't see the music. They don't hear our music or sermons or they don't come to our events. But they're at church because they are with us out there in the world in our everyday lives. And this is what Jesus is talking about. The stage of Christianity that people are actually watching is our lives. The way we are at the workplace, the way we are at the school, the way we are wherever we go. This is what the world is looking at. This is not new. This is what Jesus is talking about. In verse 15, where it says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Can I talk to you for a minute about the word house? First Baptist people know where I'm going with this. I'm gonna share something with you. It's a Greek word, the word is oikos. You might know it as yogurt, but that's not what it means. 
In modern Greek, you would say ekos, uh, as in ecosphere, economy. And it's the root word that means system, okay, ultimately. We use it as a system. But the word oikos, it literally means household. If you're an academic, you say oikos. There are actually books in the, printed with people arguing about whether it's oikos or ekos or oikos or ekos. ekos. I, you know, if you need a nap, read those books. It's crazy. I say oikos, you know, shoot me. Academically, this is what we say because it's actually a very important academic idea. There are, and so here's the thing. When you're studying the Bible, you've got to understand what the people who have, were reading it first or the people who heard Jesus say these words, what would they have understood when Jesus says this verse? Sometimes that's very hard to do, but in some cases, it's actually pretty easy to do. In the Greek world, people knew what oikos was. They understood this idea because it was part of regular education. If you take classical studies at UCSD and you study Aristotle and Plato and guys like that, uh, they are the ones who talk about this, and this is what people talked about. Oikos was the idea of household. For those of you who need to know, Aristotle was best known for this concept. There are books written about Aristotle and his household, and the foundation of society would be built on it. And oikos, this idea of household or house, the idea was crucial. Household back then was not just a mother, father, and two and a half kids. A household back then was pretty much everybody you did life with because you probably lived at somebody else's property who was your employer and you worked for that person and they fed you and you had meals together and you worked together. You did school together, you did all this together. And you lived in the same actual dwelling or you lived maybe on the same uh, multiple dwellings in the same area. It was oikos, it's how it functions, it's household. It's much bigger than just the people living in your house. It included coworkers, classmates, anyone who did, basically did life together. And the oikos, the functioning household, was crucial for healthcare, education, the overall economy of the nation, and more. And the more the oikos was strong, meaning the more that the people in, in an oikos were taking care of each other and loving each other, the better all of society was. That's because society is built upon multiple oikoi. Are you tracking with me? Don't go to sleep. I'll get off of this in a minute. And a bunch of oikoi together, different oikoses, different households, it forms something called the polis, like metropolitan or police, a government, a government, a government structure. The oikoses can govern themselves. You needed police, you needed, you needed a justice system, you needed people to build militaries and other stuff. You can't just do that in your house. Groups of people come together and basically form the governments. And it's things that the oikos can't do for itself, but multiple groups of people can do together. And the deal is, is that the oikos works better if it's stronger, and the polis works better if the oikos is strong. What do you do with old people who are no longer able to care for themselves? In your New Testament, very often the word family is oikos. And it works better with older people if the oikos is taking care of their older folks. Because if they don't, if they kick them out into the street, then who has to take care of them? The polis, the taxpayer and they're terrible at it. When the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, honor your father and mother so that may be well with thee and thou mayest live long upon the earth, that was given to adults. The whole idea is honor your father and mother, the whiny old people that are out there and that you need to stop whining about them, you're whiny too. And you take care of them. You see, the society functions better when we take care of people. And if the polis is doing it, they're spending less time and money on things that people need, like protection, justice, water, resources, things like that. How do you raise and discipline your kids? When the oikos does it, the family or the household, it works much better. You don't want the polis doing it. They do a lousy job. Have you seen what your kids are taught in school? 
you should go look. Read the curriculums. How do you care for the sick? Back then, there's no hospitals. Oikos has to do it. And if they don't, everyone is just out on the street and it creates a problem. Today, our taxpayers are burdened with it tremendously. You see, Oikos was and is vital to the functioning of any system. And historically, a nation collapses when people don't love their neighbor. Historically, a nation collapses when people don't care about the people that they work with or go to school with, and they just keep things to themselves. Educationally, back in Jesus' time, the arguments were significant over what the polis should do for the community of households or, and what the oikos should do. Lots of arguments, kind of arguments we have today over big government and small government, same kind of things that they would talk about back then. One philosopher once said, ask not what your polis can do for your oikos, ask what your oikos can do for your polis. Not really, I made that one up. But that was the question. Everybody understood in Jesus' day what oikos was and how important it is. Now, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the oikos. See how they would have heard that? The people that are in my world, my relational world, my household. Not the whole world, the whole planet, but the people that you know, the people that you interact with. In the same way, and he explains it, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The people here understood oikos to be relational world, family, friends, coworkers. Be salt and light. Be clearly seen as a benefit to those that you know so that they might think you're great to know so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. It's all kingdom of God driven, and this is how we are to live our life as believers. And everything comes back to this. It's the mission for our everyday life as followers of Jesus. And this mission is what we gather together to embolden ourselves with song, with prayer, with the Word of God so that we can go out and live our everyday lives according to how we're called because the church isn't what's happening in here. The church isn't what's happening at 5055. The church isn't what's happening because of whatever name we put on the sign. The church is happening with you at your workplace, in your classroom, wherever you go, in your own house. When you read through the Scriptures, you see this time and time again. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially to their own household, oikos, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong passage right there about paying attention to the people in your relational world and providing for them. Why? It's what you're called to do because you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. It's hard to do that for people you've never met and that you will never meet. And the people who are around you are relying on you. We need to be concerned about those that God has placed in our life. In Luke 8, 39, Jesus heals a man who then wants to leave and go be with Jesus. I completely understand that. But Jesus turns to him and says, return to your home, oikos, and declare how much God has done for you. Same passage in Mark, it says, return to your people, your oikos, and declare how much God has done for you. That guy didn't know anything, by the way. 
Jesus didn't say, now before you tell anybody about me, you need to go to Christianity 101, 201, 301 and pass the class and have the certificate. He said, go right now. That guy didn't know anything about Jesus except he was sick, now he's healed. Another guy said, I was blind and now I see. It's an amazing testimony that you have when you understand that Jesus has saved you. And you learn stuff later. That guy ends up turning out to be a missionary all over the place. You see oikos throughout the New Testament. Paul's letters, when you read your Bible, are structured usually first with some theology and then application. And you know what the application is? It's how to relate to your oikos. Wives, husbands, kids, co-workers, and the society and love your neighbor. Oikos. It's how it works. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Oikos. So what do we do about this? I'm going to give you something practical, all right? Something you can do right now. Determine who your oikos is. Studies say that most people have about 8 to 15 people in their relational world that you interact with on a regular basis. If you go look this up on Wikipedia, it says that your oikos are people that you spend at least an hour or more a week with every week. Uh, sociologists, if you're a sociology major, you'll deal with this eventually. It's important. Find the people that you interact with on a regular basis. Not people that you just like or people that you want to pray for. You should have a prayer list. You should pray for people. But who are the people that you actually interact with on a regular basis? They're the people you go to school with. And it changes sometimes. You might have a lab partner now and a different lab partner next, next semester, next quarter. Your cost changes over time because people come in and out of your life. But right now, there's 8 to 15 people that you spend a regular amount of time with. Coworkers, classmates, family, cellmates. It's kind of funny, but, you know, there's a guy who's been a part of our church, and he's not usually here at church because he's usually in jail. And he calls it his prison career. It's been a sad part of his life. Well, he got saved a while ago, and he got baptized, and then he went out and stole a car, went back home. And, uh, but he told me, he said, you know what is interesting? He says, after I accepted Jesus, he says, usually when I go to jail, the first thing I do is I join a gang. You got to fit in somehow, you know. He said, this time I decided to start an AA group. It's so amazing how God's, you know, didn't change his life enough to get him to not steal a car. But when he goes back in, he changes his entire approach. And God's using him where he is because he's got an oikos of eight to 15 other convicts and a couple of prison guards. And the great thing about Oikos is you can do it at any age. Every four-year-old downstairs over there has got eight to 15 little buddies that they can pray for. Every 104-year-old in our church has eight to 15 doctors and nurses that they can pray for. (laughs) You're not dead yet until you're dead. You are the salt and light of the earth, whatever your age is, when you know Jesus. So the first thing you do is figure out who these people are and list them. They're not always people you like. You might call your list your anoikos. <laughs> and you know what? They may not like you. Too bad. God has placed them in your life. And what does Jesus say to do? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because they need to see that Jesus died for them too. Make a list, 8 to 15 people. Write them out. If you're kind of an introvert, maybe it's a little less than eight, it's fine. If if you're really an extrovert, maybe a little more than 15, but you don't really know that many people, okay? If you've got 4,000 Facebook friends, it's not your oikos, all right? Find eight to 15. It was better when we had MySpace. If you're old, you had your top 12 or something, whatever it was. Those are your friends. That's your oikos. 
I had a MySpace, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got banned from MySpace because I put in my status, I'm probably on Facebook, and they threw me off for that. That's why there's no MySpace anymore. Not really. Then what you do after you make your list is this is what you do. You pray for them every single day. First thing you do when you get up in the morning, pray for your white house. Pray for them. Church, sometimes we put pressure on people, you know, invite your friends to church. You need to tell your friends about Jesus. You know what you should do first? Is tell Jesus about your friends. Every day, Lord, I work with this guy and uh, he seems, I don't know him very well, but I'm with him every day. Use me in his life. Crazy thing is God answers that prayer really fast, so be ready. Crazy thing is that when you're praying about being used as a believer to other people, God works on you too because you start to pay attention to the things you say at work. Because you start to realize, hey, they're at church because I'm here, I better act like I'm church. And it changes your life, it changes their life, and everything gets better. Pray for them every day. Ask God to help you be salt and light to your oikos. Ask God to let your light shine to these people so, and that you would not hide it. It's a great prayer life right there, praying for other people. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know what to pray about. You don't? Pray about other people. It's great if you don't have a lot to pray about your life. Count your blessings. Things must be pretty good. Usually we're driven to prayer when things are awful. And if you don't have anything to pray about, things must be pretty good. But pray about other people. There's stuff going on in the people's life who you interact with every day that you have no idea. And you know what's amazing is that somehow that just comes out. And suddenly you're going to lunch with somebody at work or you're in a classroom with somebody and suddenly they're just pouring their stuff out to you. Why? Because you prayed and asked God to do that. And you are uniquely designed for that person. I believe that the people in your class are there on purpose. That your gifts, your life experience, everything that you've brought to this moment is better for that person to be there. Strangest thing, we had a lady in our church who was really tall a while ago, and she lived across the street from somebody who was not very tall, across the hallway in an apartment. They just said hello, they never really met. They never really said hi, and didn't have a relationship, until they found each other in the supermarket. And standing like this, and the neighbor says, hey, I'm kind of embarrassed to ask you, but would you reach up here and grab that for me? I can't ever reach the top shelf. She said, sure. And then she said, can you grab that for me down there? Because I really don't want to bend over. They started going shopping together after that, all the time. And they developed a relationship. They developed a friendship. Eventually, they're telling, she's telling this lady about Jesus. You never know how God is going to use you with the people that He has purposely and providentially placed across the hall from you, placed next door, placed in your workplace. Pray for these people every day. They need to know Jesus, and you're there so that they do. And then what you do is you invest in them. You give them your time. You say, you know what? I would rather go out with my friends tonight, but I think my neighbor needs me to take him to the movies, so we're going to go. Or we're just going to go out to eat, or I'm going to take this coworker out to class, or I'm going to take this person. Invest in, their, in them with your time. You buy lunch. It's amazing how building a relationship with somebody else enriches both of your lives and changes your world. And when you realize that you are representing Christ, when you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, they like being with you. And you're going to impact their life and give the glory to God for doing it. 
After that, you can invite them somewhere. Invite them to your city group, invite them to a small group, large group, church service, event, whatever it is. But see, you're in a place where you have already shown that Jesus loves them. You've prayed for them and invested in them. And then what you do ongoing throughout your entire Christian life is you prepare. The reason you have Bible study is those people. It's for you. You develop your relationship with God. It's great for you, but it doesn't end there. If God's purpose for you solely was for you to get to know Him better, and that's it, well, you should die right now and just go to heaven. You're never going to know Him that well here. There's always a greater purpose to us studying the Scriptures. You know what it is? You take your coworker out to lunch, and they say to you, I've never liked those Christian people. What about this? And you say, I don't know. And you go to your small group. This guy asked me this question. How do I answer it? They get into the Bible, and they help you. You go back. Hey, I got an answer for you to that, that question. And then he's got another one. Oh, I don't know. I'll go ask. But see, over your time, over life, you start to realize that your, your job is to be with that person. They trust you enough to ask that question and get into your business spiritually. And if you don't know, that's fine. But you've got a resource of your church and your gathering of people coming together and the scriptures that you can help ask. You prepare and you constantly prepare. You see, when you grow spiritually, you can stay on mission and not just do the activities of the church, they matter. Coming together, it matters, and praying together matters, and singing together matters. We do all those things. But our everyday life is where we are called to be the church, not just for a couple hours on a Sunday. And Jesus has put people in your life already. This is why we do this. A couple of takeaways for you today. First is be the church. See yourself as Jesus sees you. If you don't see yourself that way, pray right now. God, I want to see myself as you do. He might reveal some things to you that you need to change. Great, repent. Know that he's already died for it. That he's already paid the penalty for the sin that you are weighed down with right now. It's been completed. He wants you to acknowledge it, acknowledge him, and follow him from where you are. We know what he's probably going to do. He's going to put other people in your life who are dealing with the same thing, and you're going to help them get out of it too. It's amazing. Know that Jesus is right about you. He's not just making it up. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's who you are. You've been adopted into his family when you put your faith in him. Family of God. That's amazing whoever you are. And realize that whoever you are, God is placing people in your life right now to have that mission with. Today, you can get on mission with Jesus. Secondly, do that. Make a list of your weight costs and be intentional about it. Eight to 15. Don't go too much higher than 15. If you can't quite get to eight, that's fine. Just start with where you are. Write them down. And realize something, your plan A for that person's life. Some of the people in your Oikos are Christians. They know Jesus. Maybe they're more mature than you and uh, they're speaking into your life. Get to know them better. Take them out. Ask them questions about their faith. It's important. Some people are maybe not as mature as you or don't know as much as you. Take them out and pour yourself into them. Whatever it is you got. It's great. Some people, though, on your list are not believers. Maybe they're even hostile to the faith. In fact, if you don't know anybody who's not a believer, you need to dump some of your friends and go get some other non-Christian friends. 
what we do in the church, right? Is we get all Christian friends and then we, just, we think the whole world is saved. Yeah, yeah, 85% of the churches of the world is saved. Why should we worry? Can't figure out why all the churches are closing. Find those people and pray for them every day and realize that you're plan A because here's the thing. Almost every single person for 2,000 years that has accepted Jesus as their Savior did so through an oikos relationship. Almost all of them. A parent, a grandparent, a sister, a brother, a friend, a classmate, a cellmate, a boss, an employee. Almost everybody gets saved that way. If you're a believer, you believe that Jesus is your Savior. Raise your hand if you are a believer today because somebody told you about the gospel, somebody in an oikos relationship. Would you put your hand up really high? Really high. Get it up really high. Look around. The craziest thing is that 95% of people who have ever become saved got saved through a relationship. There are some of you who got saved because you were lonely in a hotel and picked up a Gideon's Bible and read the right passage and you got saved. I met a guy who got saved on YouTube because he searched for the right pastors. It's a miracle. You know what the problem, though, is in the church is that we put those guys on stage to hear their story. Isn't it amazing how God can even work through YouTube? Praise the Lord. But it's less than 5% is that, and we spend all of our time hoping for that, all of our time hoping that people come to our churches so that maybe the pastor can share the gospel with them. 95% of people who have ever been saved didn't happen that way. They got saved because somebody told them about Jesus because Jesus' church is built by people making disciples. That's the way it's going to work. He's the designer. Sometimes he goes outside of the plan and does something amazing through YouTube. But even if you got saved because somebody brought you to a Billy Graham uh, crusade, you probably didn't show up there on your own. Somebody's been investing in you for a long time. This is how the church works. This is how we stay on mission. It matters. And finally, pray for your oikos every day. Pray and invest, invite and prepare. When you're doing that every day, you stay on mission. It affects your life tremendously because it's every day. It's not just putting on something for church on Sunday. And you realize that every day you're the church and every day the people that you're with are at church because they're with you. It's a great way to live and you suddenly find out, you know what, life is pretty good. And I've got these sins and terrible mistakes in my life and all kinds of things, but they've been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And that same Jesus, this other person needs to know and I get to tell them. And the failures and problems I've had in my life, God's gonna put those same people in my life. It's so weird. This is what we say a lot here about your oikos. Your oikos is the eight to 15 people that God has purposefully and providentially placed in your relational world. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have to those people and invest in their life. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And it, we are sometimes just surprised to hear what it is you think about us, salt of the earth, the light of the world. Come on. Help us to realize that we can be that because we have a Savior who made us that. Help us to realize that wherever we are, that we have forgiveness right there for us and everlasting life right there for us and mission in this life right there for us just by putting our faith in the real Jesus who died on the cross from our sins and rose again giving us hope of everlasting life and help us, Lord, to love our neighbor, to pay attention to the people that you've placed in our life, to be externally focused this way, to realize that the church, your church is not a building or an address, 
It is your body in the world, in our everyday lives. And I pray for anybody here today who is struggling, who doesn't feel that this might be true, who feels like they're in a place of darkness, Lord, I pray that they would see the light from the people who brought them, from the people that they interact with here, from other Christians in their life, and that they would know that Jesus saves, and they would know that they have tremendous worth now, and they have mission that they can start today when they put their faith in you, when they believe you about who they are, when they accept the forgiveness that you have offered to all who confess Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as a body here, we would care about those people you've placed in our life, that we would be committed to loving others so that you get the glory and that we would be exactly who you say we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.